expanding the Nerdosphere, talking on everything you want to hear. From comics to cosplay, from the cinematic universe to fan films and everything in between, it's time to get down and nerdy. Here are your hosts, James Witham and Nick Pataglia. Kind of a tragic start to episode 135 of the Dan and Nerdy podcast because, Nick, I can't help but wonder if tragedy could have been averted if somebody just taught Negan how to play eeny, meeny, miny, moe at a younger age. Or if somebody taught the writers, hey, maybe not waiting six months or whatever would be a good idea to show who he killed because, man, when they showed who he killed, of course, spoilers right here, when he killed Abraham and he killed Glenn, People are like, oh my god, how could he kill Glenn? I'm like, because it's in the fucking comics. It's like, come on, man, really? Why could he kill Glenn? And then people are like, oh, spoiler! Right. Don't tell me he killed Glenn. Uh, it's in the comics, which you read, right? Oh, yeah. wait, no, you probably didn't. Before we go any further, I'm the Merkel Alarm, Nick Battaglia, alongside... I'm James Witham, and I understand why people were upset, slash excited, slash right. got the highest ratings in the history of whatever. I totally get it, but I just think that... I don't know. I mean, I know that uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan came out and he said, Oh, it probably would have been smarter to kill Rick, and I'm thinking, yeah, it would have been a lot more surprising, too. Well, a problem a lot of people are having who actually watch the show. I watched the clips of, of what happened of Negan's kill, stuff like that. Cause that's really the only thing I was really interested in. And people were just like, yeah, I didn't like the fact that we had to wait till midway through the entire episode to see who we actually killed. You know, you had people talking about, you know, waiting for so long and the payoff. And it's like, it would have been more, I think, a greater ending to the season six if you had shown who he had killed. If he killed both Glenn and Abraham. Then you have people marinate on that for six months, and then you come back in season seven. What is Rick and the gang going to do? Here's what I would have done. Show him killing Abraham, right? Right. Do that, and then Daryl makes his move, right? Right. So when that happens, that's when you cut right there. That's no. your that's your cliffhanger. Because then you don't know what's going to happen after that. No, because I think what would happen was is if they show, okay, Abraham was the first to die, but if they took Abraham, killed him off, and then Daryl did his thing, and then Negan just did, okay, and then took a bat to Glenn, like, that would shock people even more because it's like, oh, okay, Abraham was the guy that he killed all along. They're not going to kill Glenn off because, you know, I th- I didn't think they would kill Glenn off because I'm like, they, already kind of, they faked him dying a bunch of times or a couple of times. And I'm like, okay, they're going off book a lot now. I, I'm, I'm not shocked that they, if they didn't, but they did. I'm like, okay, so that would have been more of a shock value in that as well. And then you cut to just, uh, you know, their bodies lying there and then cut to season seven pretty much. See, I think you had to kill Glenn. I mean, I think that going off book oh, is fine. I'm yeah. not saying they didn't. I'm just, I, I mean, like I said, I wouldn't have held it against them if they didn't. But I'm glad they did because I'm like, finally, the whole thing with Glenn and high under the dumpster is over. And, you know, did he die? They were teasing it for weeks. But I think that, you know, as Walking Dead goes forward, a lot of people are talking about this, you're going to have... Uh, a season seven premiere that, that grabbed people's attention. People are still talking about it, still trending on Twitter to this day. And then you're going to have like five episodes of just nothing happening. Well, that's the problem. What, what now? Right. You know, you got your big reveal. You got, you got your big who Glenn, who uh, Negan killed. Now what, where do you go? Because they, you start your season on a high like that. 
you better you better keep it ramped up and people aren't just going to stay interested just because i mean before this even happened last season the interest was starting to wane a little bit so i'll be very right. interested to see what the drop off is in ratings between this episode and the next episode right and of course they're bringing in uh, king ezekiel and they're bringing in shiva and, and jesus as well so i mean you know who knows? I know the whole thing. I'll say this though: if you're somebody who has a, if Daryl dies, we riot. Sure, I bet they're burning them right now. Yeah, I think so too. At this point, I think that that's kind of gone by the wayside. But speaking of things that have gone by the wayside, that's going to do it for our introduction and a little bit of a talk about, of course, the season seven premiere of Walking Dead. But coming up next, we have two new books to do this week. I say books because there's something interesting that one of us is doing this week with one of our things that we read this past week that's coming up next on the podcast. Hey guys, this is Violet from The Flash, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, nerds, it's that time we pull out our lawn boxes and we discuss what we're reading this week. Now, James, do you want me to go first or do you want you to go first? Yeah, I think you should go first because I, I kind of like what you're doing this week. All right, so as I teased in the intro that we're doing, one of us is doing something a little bit different this week. And, of course, it's going to be me since James pretty much just said it. We've never done and reviewed an art book before on the show. We've done, you know, as we always do, comics. Well, Dynamite came out with the Art of Atari, you know, tabletop hardcover book. And I saw this, we both saw this, I'm like, I need to do this. Now, when you look at this, the author is Tim Lapentino, and the designer is Jason Adam. And the reason why they don't have any illustrators is because Atari has a bunch of artists, there's a bunch of old, you know, old school art, you know, pieces in here from all the boxes and everything else. But some of the notes that I got from this was, this isn't just 340 some odd pages of, Art Like, you're not turning a page and just, there's art, there's art, there's art. This is pretty much an autobiography of Atari, but spliced in it as you're going page by page. There are photos of the the co-founders, of people who work there, artists doing their job and working on pieces for box arts. And, for example, there's a, a, one of the first chapters, really, after you go through the history of Atari, is one on Pong. And you have, you see... These old cabinets of Pong, they have pictures of them. They actually have old advertisements of the Pong cabinets that they had. And, and something that was pretty cool about Pong was, you know, you want to talk about a game that really launched Atari. By the end of 74, Atari sold $3.2 million worth of Pong and its sequels. It's just funny that, you just wrap your head around that for a second. Pong had to be in a cabinet at one point. Well, and here's the thing about that. So... The reason, so they had a prototype of the cabinet, right? They put it in a pretty much a, a dive bar called Andy Caps, and the cabinet prototype had to be fixed repeatedly because not because it was the game was flawed or anything like that, or the cabinet was bad, it was because it was so popular at the dive bar that its coin mechanism was overflowing with quarters. Yep, that makes sense to me. I mean, you introduce something like that into almost any setting, and it's gonna there's going to be popularity. I mean, you go into almost any dive bar or any bar in the country now, and you're going to see some sort of video game. It doesn't matter what it is. Right, and then, of course, they talk about Nolan, Nolan Bushnell, who pretty much at one time was, he was one of the co-founders, but then he became a sole, a sole uh owner of it, sold it to Warners. He's actually the guy that actually founded Chuck E. Cheese back in 79 uh, after he was forced out by Warner Communications. And it was funny because as you're reading this, one thing I like about uh, the writing by Levantino is that even though you can watch, there are many Atari documentaries out there, there are many articles and stuff like that, but just rereading all this stuff 
it just feels like an adventure. It feels like you're rereading it for the first time. There are things that I didn't know going into this that I found out. Like, you know, the fact that Nolan Bushnell actually kind of forewarned Warner saying, hey, the market is pretty flooded right now. Maybe not put out so many games. And as we all know, that's what really flooded and pretty much killed or almost killed the video game industry in the 80s. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I mean, but there were, I mean, there were so many good games and people forget that uh, Atari, because as someone that owned a 2600 and a 7800, you, you forget Atari had a lot of backwards compatibility too. So right. it wasn't just new games that were coming out. You were able to play some of the old games on some of the systems as well. So you want to talk about flooding the marketplace. If you already had a ton of games and then you upgrade the system as the new game comes out, it doesn't mean you could just stop playing the old ones. Right. And also, you know, as you're going through this book and you're, there's a bunch of chapters, there's a chapter on coin operated machines. Again, there's a chapter on Pong and the history of Atari when it was founded. Uh, there are, you know, within the history and stuff like that, as you're going forward, like, uh, there's chapters on box art and just the designers and the fact that like, you know, programmers leaving and starting Activision from Atari. Like when you read this, you're like, Atari is like, you know, in, in the NFL, they have a coaching tree, like, oh, the Bill Belichick coaching tree or whatever. Mm-hmm. In the Atari, they have the programmers coaching tree of like, you know, of course, everybody knows, you know, uh, Steve Jobs was there for a little bit. But really, when they think about Steve Jobs, they highlight him a little bit in the book. I mean, Waz did all the work and Jobs took the credit. It was like Jobs got paid in, in bonuses for because they wanted to sit. There was a part where they were like, okay, we want to have a game that has have so less chips. Like, we'll give you a bonus for the less amount of chips it has. So they paid Steve Jobs like thousands and thousands of dollars, like 10000 or $5,000, whatever. He only gave Wozniak 350 who actually did all the work on the fucking game. So what you're saying is Waz got jobbed. He, he did. He really did. Okay, get just wanted to make sure that was clear. But, I mean, this book highlights, like, you know, the closing of Atari back in 03. Uh, it highlights, of course, the E.T. thing, the whole debacle there, and the oh, yeah. burying of the E.T. games and all the other stuff. A thing about Pac-Man here as well. And also, as you go through this, there are profiles of all the programmers and some of the artists in here as you go through it. And, again, as you're weaving through each page, there's, like, different box art. There's pages of, of art and stuff like that, which is great. Uh, that you can just look at and you can get lost in. And the thing was, is they highlight in this book a lot in the writing that box art was very important because, you know, back in that day, you had a couple of pixels and stuff like that. You didn't know what you were getting, but it's, you know, they talk about, you know, Bushnell talked about how, you know, yeah, if you look at, at you know, a box and you see, like, this great warrior on there, like, you could picture that happening, like, in your mind. Yep. Even though you're looking at, like, two pixels worth of stuff pretty much. But, I mean... Before I, I wrap up, there's a great quote about just box art in general that I want to talk about when it was Bushnell. And he said, design is the best return investment that you can have. It's virtually the same cost to build something pretty as something shitty. So why not make the world a better looking place? Whether it's a box, a game, whether it's an object, pretty is better than ugly. And he's totally right about that. And again, oh, yeah. this immerses you all the way back from Atari's start to when it you know closed its doors and stuff. They have a chapters about logos design and just you know the different games and as you said the backwards compatibility they talk about all that great stuff you have all this wonderful old school art like again you look at the cover of the book you look at the book itself it's like something you figure like okay my parents bought this like 1980 whatever or something like in the 70s or whatever and 
it has that old look to it. Like it's something that you would love to put on your coffee table as like a centerpiece, I would think. Absolutely, especially if you're in the nerd home. Yeah, that's that's definitely a must-have. I mean, even if you didn't grow up in the Atari generation like I did, I think you can appreciate the you know, the games and what Atari brought to the video game industry, being the grandfather of the modern video game industry. And if there was no Atari, think about what there would not be. And I think I love the fact that Dynamite decided to do an homage to that. Right. And of course, this, you can't pull this book because it's not single issues. It's a big book. You would go out and buy this. I believe it's about 30 to 40 bucks, I believe. So go out and spend the money, get this book. Because again, it's 300. It's not like, oh, we're going to have you spend $30, $40 on a book and only give you X amount of stuff. They give you th- over 300 pages of content. That's good content, man. I mean, I know that that's kind of a hefty price tag, but I mean, it's, it's a small price to pay for a little bit of history as, as far as I'm concerned. Well, I mean, again, you have the art, you have all the history in there, so hey... Why not, you know, throw down for it? But what did you do this week, bud? No, well, I decided to go back to the DC realm and a limited series that you and I are both kind of interested in, Vigilante Southland, yes. which is a number one of six issue. It's written by Carrie Phillips. Elena Casagrande did the art. Galita Barrasco did the colors. And Todd Klein did the letters. Our buddy Mitch Gerard's from, uh, by the way, from Sheriff of Babylon. Yeah. The cover art for this as well. Love that. Now, basically, I mean, if you remember the vigilante character, you pretty much already know uh, his backstory. But here's the deal. They do something a little bit different because they're in South Los Angeles now. So it's a little bit different. So, they, you know, they show a lot of, you know, uh, playground basketball and stuff like that. And there's a university backdrop. And it follows a guy named Donnie who, of course, spoiler alert, ends up being the vigilante character, which they kind of tell you in the in the solicitations anyway, so that's not really much of a spoiler. But basically, it deals a lot with the dynamic between him and his significant other, a, a woman who's very much an activist and wants to do stuff for her community, and he's kind of the opposite of that. He's like, hey, you know, things are going to happen, what are you going to do, kind of thing. And it, it's a very interesting dynamic, but it's not just about that. Something happens in the middle of this book that causes him to change his perspective, And he ends up going to seek out the advice of someone that he really does not want to go to. And it creates sort of an awkward partnership in a way. And and they turn out, it turns out they're looking for this specific person. And it's because of what happens in the middle of the book that they're listening, that they're looking for this person. Now, I can't tell you any more than that without spoiling major plot points in this book, which which is exactly what I don't want to do. Now, here's something I, I read the book as well. I want to get your take on this. What do you think of the pacing of the book? I thought it was a little slow, honestly. I mean, I, I wasn't really a big fan of how uh, they brought the book along. I thought that it took a little bit too long to get to the point, and when it did get to the point, it, it was like, okay, how did you? If, at points, I was like, okay, how do you how do you do a lot on this and then skip right to this? Kind of thing. Did you feel the same way? Because it feels like it felt like they they give a lot of attention to certain things that could have been cut shorter, and then they didn't give any attention to a couple major things. I think the way I felt about the pacing was there are points, as you mentioned, where it felt slow. It felt like okay, you can kind of cut this panel or this page or some of these things out. It is, you know, it's kind of slowing it down a little bit, kind of get stuck stuck in the mud. But then there were parts where I'm like, wow, this is moving really really fast, but a little bit too fast. I think it's it's the first issue. I think it, one thing it struggled with was finding that right tempo. 
Well, here's my problem too. Is it's a one part, it's a five part series. Issue one needs to grab you right away. Right. I didn't feel that way. As a matter of fact, I at the end of the at the end of the issue, I found myself saying, "What's the bigger picture here?" Right. Because you understand why he's doing what he's doing in a in a small capsule, but and that's fine. But there has to be a bigger picture, and there there typically is, especially in a limited series. And I just didn't get what that bigger picture was. Right, and again, I look at this, and I look at, at at the pacing of it, and what the bigger picture is. I think that it's one of those things that I would give it, even though it's a limited. I would give it a couple, like maybe another issue, probably before deciding. But I mean, uh, before we get to your rating, though, what did you think of the art in this? I think the art was pretty good. I mean, I I go back to uh, Sheriff of Babylon. Uh, a little bit. I know Mitch Gerards didn't do the art for the interior, did the cover, but I think it was pretty standard to what you would get in, in say, a Vertigo book like Sheriff of Babylon, so I liked it. I didn't think it was hugely detailed. I didn't think it was as good as Sheriff of Babylon uh, was, but I think it was right around that that kind of area, so I didn't have a problem with the art. I also felt like it didn't seem to capture the essence of South L.A. I mean, I know as someone who's not been there, maybe that's not, not for me to say, but I don't feel like it captured it all that well to me. Like I live, I mean, as you all know, I used to live in Los Angeles. I did when I read this. I honestly, I feel the same way. I didn't feel that that LA feel to it. You know, it felt like it could have been anywhere USA. I mean, you had of course some of the panels out, some of the outside shots. Like, okay, I can get an idea where this is, but for the most part, it could have just taken it any regular middle road or even a fake city. I mean, it could have been to me. It could have been Chicago. It could have been Miami. Could have right. been New York. I mean, there's a lot of places. I, I wanted that connection when I read this book too, because I knew where the setting was. I was like, oh, okay, I want it to be. I wanted to connect to the area because I feel like that's something that books like this should do, and I'm just not sure it did that. I mean, the art was pretty good. There were parts of the book that I liked, and I'll agree with you. I, this is one that I'll definitely give another issue because I think that you know maybe I'm I'm judging this one too harshly. Maybe this was supposed to be kind of a zero, even though it's a five part series, and see if issue two picks up at the end. But even the cliffhanger that they had at the very last page it's not much of a cliffhanger to me because it doesn't, to me, there wasn't enough realism there and there wasn't enough establishment of that event for it to be meaningful to me. And again, I have to be a little vague here because it's a plot, major plot point that I don't want to ruin. So I'll give this a pick up one more issue instead of, instead of three, we usually do a three issue standard on stuff like that, but because this is limited, I'm going to go one more issue and see what happens. That's going to do it for what we're reading this week. But coming up next, we're going to be taking a look at the holistic side of things, especially because right now, coming up next, we're going to be talking about Dirk Gently, of course, the new series on BBC America and also from IDW as well. Stay tuned. Our review of Dirk Gently is coming up next on the Down Nerdy Podcast. This is Matt Lesher from The Flash and Legends of Tomorrow, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Every now and then you just have a really, really, really bad day. But I don't think we've ever had a bad day like Todd did. We're going to review right now the pilot episode of Dirk Gently Holistic Detective Agency from BBC America and IDW. And man, spoiler filled here coming up. But I got to tell you, very, very interesting show. And this, there's something you, you texted me last night uh, when, you know, after you watched it and I watched it afterwards. And you said that this is something that you can't describe. Like when somebody says, oh, what could you compare it to? There's nothing you can compare the show to. And that's not a bad thing. It is weird and quirky and 
just all in a good way. Like you, like I, like you said, there's no way because you automatically, when you watch any show, like, oh, this is like that or that's like this. Like we were comparing Timeless and Legends of Tomorrow right. uh, last week. I cannot. I've racked my brain. And I could not come up with anything to even do justice to how to describe this show. And to me, that is so awesome and refreshing. It is, it is, because it's, again, it's quirky, it's unique. So pretty much, let's dive a little bit into the plot. Now, again, as you mentioned earlier in the, in the opening, that, you know, this follows a guy named Todd who's having the worst possible day of his life. For example, his landlord's after him. We find out later in the episode why uh, he gets fired from his job. There's a, Oh, and it just so happens there's a murder at his job, too, and he's a person of interest in it. He basically well. gets pinned for everybody that right. dies in the right. episode, and he's barely even... He's either not there or barely there. He discovers the bodies. I mean, you want to talk about a bad day. This guy had one, and the landlord's a psychopath. But he was so fun as hell, though. He was. He really was. He was He was psycho in a way that was really, really fun. And not to mention, we find out, what, halfway through the episode that there's this tragic story yeah. about Todd's life and his sister and this condition that she has and that he was afflicted with and his entire family had been afflicted with as well. And it's just, it's like, man, this guy not only can't catch a break, but he's struggling and he's doing everything he can to try and, like, keep his family whole. It's like, geez, Elijah Wood, you poor guy. Right. I mean, look at, like, Elijah Wood and stuff he's done, like, you know, Frodo, where he had his, you know, he had his finger bitten off by God. I'm like, Elijah Wood just can't catch a break when it comes to, like, in terms of, like, his characters in, in projects, because they always get the short end of the stick. He's, but- he suffers like Sean Bean dies. Pretty much, <laughs> basically. He's just, yeah, he's he's just you know. But when it comes to punishment, he's always at the brunt end of it. But I yep. mean, you mentioned his sister and how. Yes, the reason why you know, his landlord's after him is because he had to get medication for his sister who suffers from uh, a disease that runs in the family. And pretty much, you know, what it is is like you know you could be as we saw, you know, you could be playing on the drums. But all of a sudden, you your mind immediately thinks that you're having a knife in your hand. You're cutting yourself. You know. By holding the blade and you're not, you're holding a, a drumstick in your hand, you know? And one thing the show does well is, is the psychological aspect. Because when somebody would, if somebody uh, would to, were to watch this and there's a lot of fast moving parts in this, they'd be like, oh, wow, this is like weird. And this is, I mean, you know, it feels disjointed, but really it ties into, and the reason why it feels disjointed, even though it's not, is because as Dirk Gently, who is brilliantly played by Samuel Barnett, says, you know, I'm a holistic detective. You know, everything is tied to everything, you know? And there's like, you know, there's a reason things happen. And, and it's just like, you're going to, you know, there's a, there's a part where he has, Todd has a lottery ticket. And he's like, oh, money's not going to be an issue soon. And it's kind of like, things always find a way of working themselves out in one way or another. And I like that because it kind of keeps you guessing of like, okay, what can kind of happen? You can pick up on certain clues, if you will, of like the lottery ticket and stuff. But you really... This isn't a show. This is to, to classify a show. This isn't really a show where you have to think, but it's a show that you kind of have to. It's kind of like in the middle, really. Yeah, you find yourselves being entertained, but then you find yourself going, "Oh, wait a minute! I need to really think about this kind of thing." It's it's almost like the the thinking part is subliminal. It just kind of hits you when it needs to hit you, and I think that that's part of the 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 way the show is run and the brilliant writing in the show. And like you said, Samuel Barnett is fan. Fantastic well, as Dirk Gently. I mean, he's. If you want to talk about, if there's one word that describes Samuel Samuel Barnett's portrayal of Dirk Gently, it's that charming. He's very charming. He's a very 
upbeat individual. And it's just, you can feel like, you know, his and Todd's relationship in the show, you know, it's one of kind of, first off, like, you know, odd couple you know, you have this guy who's like, I think whose world's falling around him, but then this guy's like, oh, everything will work out, and he's driving a fast Corvette, you know, and, and, and he's trying to, like, just dig into certain things. But, I mean, you look at the show, and as it goes on, because it's about an hour show, and just the different things that are in there, you have this assassin is after Dirk Gently. That was hilarious. That was The great. holistic assassin thing? Oh, my gosh, that was so funny. You know, so like, what's going to happen when she finds him, and why is she after him, and stuff like that, and you know, is there more to it? But I mean, overall, this show, when I watched it last night, I think you feel the same way. This is a refreshing show. This is a refreshing, you know, this isn't like when you watch like, The Flash, or even like Legends, where there's like a certain arc, or like a certain Flashpoint storyline to it. It's like, it's one of those shows where you have to trust that everything's going to fall into place, because again, this is the whole holistic side of it, is that, you know, things will work out, and things, you know, will fall into place and show themselves in time, and things did. I really enjoyed this. I mean, I, I watched this at like four in the morning, and I'm like, I was laughing. I've laughed a bunch during this show. Yeah, so did I. And I mean, IDW, you mentioned, we mentioned them earlier. They've got a ton of Dirk Gently comics if you want to read more, oh, yeah. read up on the characters. Well, there's so many more. And then one of the other things I loved about this show was there was so many quote-unquote, that guy actors in it, like right. Miguel Sandoval and Richard Schiff, you know, you know, oh, if you love the West can Wing. Say, can I say something about Richard Schiff real quick? He, okay, so Richard Schiff, I watched a lot, there was a couple of shows that I watched that he was in, for example, uh, one was House of Lies, and then another one was uh, Ballers. He plays a perfect dick. If you need a guy to play a dick, he is your guy. This is the first time where he played kind of like a quirky, yep. like, Somebody I haven't seen him play really in a while, if at all. And I'm like, wow, that's really refreshing. And he the pulls whole, it off. Oh, yeah. And the, the thing he has with, you know, uh, his partner there, uh, I think is, is great. You know, do the, you know, the eyebrows, eyebrows, you know, kind yeah. of thing. And it's just, again, this is a show that relies on its quirkiness and it does, I think, a really fascinating job. And the side stories that are there that are all going to, at some point, you know, tie together – just works so well as their own separate entity. That's the other thing. And it's it's almost like when you watch shows and some shows do that and you go, why are they doing this? Why are they doing that? Go back to this. No, every little side story had you interested in its own little way. And I think that that's great too. If I got to say this. We live in a world of social media. If, if hashtag I have the shot or I have a shot oh, gosh. is not trending or has some sort of you know T-shirt or coffee mug, IDW, get on that. That'd be a perfect thing. I, I really think it would be, too. And I got to tell you, man, Dustin Milligan with that Sergeant <laughs> Hugo character. And the chemistry that he has with Miguel Sandoval is incredible. And, oh, the, one of the funniest scenes in the whole show. And I, I don't know if, I don't know if you feel the same way is when they're all con- getting ready to converge in the apartment and like four different government agencies yes. and cops come together. They're all telling each other to freeze. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, the CIA is here. The FBI is here. The cops are here. And who are you guys? Yeah. Like, are you guys some secret service guys? What are you? Like, bounty hunter? What are you? Like, protective service? But no, again, you know, wrapping up a review of this, man, I think, again, the act, I think is phenomenal on this. Uh, it has, you know, it's BBC America, so it has that. You can feel that British humor in there as well, that kind of dry but witty uh, British humor in there. And I think that overall, this is a show I think that you have to watch. Because, again, 
you know, you can watch all your CW stuff and everything else, and that's very serious. But if you need something that's quirky and fun, and you need something that you can say, hey, it's a Saturday night, you know, I want to watch something fun and quirky, hey, don't go on Netflix. Just go on BBC America and watch Dirk Gently. Absolutely, man. And it's just, these. this is one of those shows where you see the word detective agency attached, and people automatically think, oh, here we go, procedural, maybe it'll be funny, maybe you borrow from something like a Brooklyn Nine-Nine or something like that. No, this show stands on its own, it moves away from every other show that you're watching right now and gives you a completely new and unique experience, and that is one of the things I love about Dirk Gently. And because this is a brand new show, we are going to give our ratings on it. So, James, I'll go first. Again, the acting was great. Uh, I felt the cinematography. The op- I just want to say this. The opening scene, the cinematography in that was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant, the way the camera moves. Uh, it was awesome. I'm giving this... Nine out of ten corgis. All right, I think that that's uh, I think that's a good rating, and I I gotta say, there's not really much more I can say other than uh, what I said before. And there's so many brilliant individual performances here, and you see the name like Elijah Wood, and you think, oh, I know that name, and you expect him to stand out, and he does. But so many other people jump out and pick up the slack, and also stand out as well. And Samuel Barnett steals the show as Dirk Gently. Absolutely brilliant performance. So I'm going to give this. Nine stolen muffins and ring dings out of ten. <laughs> and that's going to do it for a review of Dirk Gently, Holistic Detective Agency. Again, BBC America, IDW, you guys have a hit on your hands with this show. Coming up next, we have a bunch of nerd news. Stay tuned. More Down Nerdy is coming up next. Hey, this is voice actor Roger Craig Smith, and you guys are listening, you lucky people, to the Down and Nerdy podcast. And we're back. Well, James, it's time we walk around the picket lines and we go on our smartphones and we see what's trending around the interwebs because it's time for what? Nerd News! And our first story is a very important story. You know, a lot of stories we talk about in the show deal with somebody's leaving a project, which we'll get to later, or a reboot is happening. But this one is very near and dear to our hearts. Now, listen, we understand that the whole voice actors going on strike thing is affecting a lot of people now. There have been a lot of reports that have been very biased against the voice actors, and I we need to let it be known. And James and I, over our lifetime, have done voiceover work. We know what it calls for. We know how strenuous it can be. And something that angers me are people who don't know what goes on behind the scenes, don't know what, how voiceover things work, how projects work, and then they think they know everything because... Oh, or, or worse, they say, oh, I can do this. No, you can't because it takes a certain talent. It needs a certain voice. You can have a, any voice you want you're born with. But the thing is, certain projects call for certain types of voices, and there are certain things that sag After is looking for that, honestly, the video game companies aren't doing right now. L- listen, I've been in the voiceover slash broadcasting business for over 20 years now and i've been doing it for 10 and i've seen them come and go and you're right there's it takes a certain talent i mean it looks easy on the surface trust me i get it it looks really easy on the surface but there's way more to it than the regular person realizes and the same goes for like if you and i if there was like an engineering strike or something right or a or some sort of something that we don't really know a whole lot about and it might look easy to us on the surface but you know when you get down to it it's like wow it's really not that simple at all and maybe there is something to this so i understand that 
people might not get it and might say, oh, the poor rich voice actors are going on strike. Look, just a quick personal story. I've been in a situation where I was in a booth for, but from 4 a.m. to 1 p.m. with only two five-minute breaks. And that was in talking pretty much the entire time. And it stresses you out, man. And that's some of the kind of things that these voice actors are going through. Nick, actually, why don't you just go through the list of the stuff that they're trying to uh, trying to get out of this? Yeah, and the first thing that comes to mind is, of course, secondary compensation. Now, we live in an era right now where you can buy games digitally. You can still buy them in the store, but a lot of people, hey... If you don't want to travel to a GameStop or the mall or wherever to get your game, you say, you know what, I'm just going to download this digitally through PlayStation Network or your Xbox account or whatever. You can. But the thing is, with that being available to the, the people who play, the gamers, you're selling millions and millions of copies more than you would back in the day. So they're asking for a performance bonus for every 2 million copies or downloads sold Mm. or 2 million unique subscribers to an online-only games. So, you know, League of Legends or uh, Warcraft Warcraft, stuff like that. Uh, With a cap at 8 million units for subscribers and slash subscribers. So pretty much that's going to come out to four session payments per principal performer for the most successful games, 2 million, 4 million, 6 million, and 8 million copies. And think about that threshold to 2 million and the capped at 8 million. You, you, that means it has to be a pretty successful game to even reach that threshold. So if it doesn't reach that threshold, they're not even asking for compensation beyond that. So to me, I look at 2 million and I'm like, just to me, that seems like a fair number. Right, it's a fair number because, I mean, you look at games like Grand Theft Auto V that sold a lot of games. There are some indie games that sold as well. Now, not a lot of indie performers or people who've worked on indie games are going to, you know, of course, come to this thing with a 2 million copy starting point. But, you know, it's just the idea of, hey, that's going to drive, you know, performers to... Not saying they don't do good stuff now, but to, to be better, say, hey, okay, if we reach this thing, you know, it's kind of like in sports where you have performance incentives. You yep, know, if exactly. you reach a thousand yards receiving, you're going to get this much money. Well, right. hey, if you're on a game and you do a good enough job doing voice work, and also the programmers do a great job piecing the world together and stuff, and you do a great job marketing it, everybody should reap the benefits, not just those right. at the high up in the developing chain. Right, exactly. Another thing they want to do is they want to. They want more transparency. Now, pretty much this is a big issue as well. There was a story uh, through Kotaku and pretty much reached out through the entire gaming uh, community in terms of journalism uh, that producers hide important information. Basically what it is is there's a, a situation, for example, with Fallout. There was an actor in Fallout 4 recently who played a part in it that was central to the game, especially in the beginning parts of the game. Well, the person didn't know they're working on a Fallout game, so that means that the negotiations were more stacked against them uh-huh. in favor of the developer. So, for example, say for instance, James and I went to say, "Okay, we're gonna we got offered these parts for this voicing, is this video game? What can we do? You know, or what game is it? Oh, well, we we can't tell you. We're not gonna tell you." What is it though? Okay, so so okay, then we'll take eight hundred dollars a session instead of I saying okay, we can get two right. three thousand dollars a session. And here's the deal, man. And here's the deal, man. There's there are there are non disclosure agreements, right? You know, people you people understand that. All you have to right. do sign an NDA and say, hey, 
You're going to be working on Fallout, but we can't have you talking about it, so make sure you sign this. Here's a date when you can start talking about it after we announce it at, like, E3 or whatever. Then you can start discussing it. That's how the world works. So, I mean, you have to keep that in mind. That's an option. And the big thing is this transparency is people don't know what roles they're getting in games either. And that's the thing, too. You can say, okay, you can be... Uh, this role, okay, how big is it? Is it the main character? They don't tell you. And again, that pays into your how much you're being paid as a voice actor and everything else. And then a third thing they want to do is, you know, they want to talk about, you know, employers aren't taking people seriously. They're not taking the voiceover actors seriously. As James mentioned before, he was in the booth from, you know, early in the morning to into the afternoon with little to no breaks. And listen... There needs to be some sort of protection, insurance policies, or whatever like that into the contracts of the voice actors. And developers have said, well, we will put more tea and water into the booths. That doesn't do anything. Sure, it, it you know coats the vocal cords a little bit, get, makes your throat less sore. But at the end of the day, you know, voice actors, sometimes you have to go into, and I've had to do this, where you've gone into a booth and you say, okay, you have to go into a booth and scream for like a few hours. Yeah. And... Oh, but wait a minute, I have to scream for four hours and my voice, I can't talk to anybody the rest of the day. Oh, there's water and tea in there, you're good. What? Like, yeah. like, like no. And there's, you know, you're hearing stories about people having to get vocal cord surgery and all this other stuff. Remember, this is, you know, not just being able to talk. This is our, our job here. Our vocal cords, our voices are our jobs. If, can you imagine us not being able to do this anymore because we had vocal cord strain? Right, exactly. Not being able to do this. Or, or, you know, we do do side projects. So imagine if I said, hey, man, I, I can't do the show anymore or I have to be out for a month. Why? Because I have to, tra- you know, surge my vocal cords because I had wanted to be in a ga- video game. And so I ended up screaming my lungs out. And, and people, you got to realize that sometimes the only thing you could do for your voice is rest it. Right. I mean, honestly, I mean, there was a point, I, th- I think people remember last year, if you're a big fan of the show and you were listening, I lost my voice for like two weeks. Yeah. And I had to, I had to power through it. It was scary, man. I thought it wasn't really going to come back the way it was supposed to. And that, you know, that was due to illness. So that was a little bit different, but then it was already strained and I had to strain it further to keep going and doing my job, which is talking. And it's, it's easy to take that for granted again, for somebody that's outside of this and see, ah, well, it's not a big deal. Well, if you're a surgeon and you your hands get messed up and you get arthritis, what happens to you? You're not going to really be able to perform surgery anymore, so... But you'll be, however, you'll be able to, uh, you know, travel all the way out to near Tibet or whatever and learn the mystic arts. Yeah, that is true. That would be a nice trade-off. Yeah, but I mean, again, listen, I understand people are probably listening to this and they're probably people who are pissed off at us saying what we're saying, but just look at, okay... Picture yourself. I want you to do this. Close your eyes if you're listening. Not if you're driving. Not if you're driving. What do you do for a living? Okay? You could be a garbage person. You could be somebody who sits behind a desk, whatever. Something happens to you and you cannot work anymore. You cannot do what you love anymore. How would you feel if you did not have any protective measures or if the companies didn't like they washed your hands of you after this incident happened, whether they let you go, they didn't compensate you for leaving or whatever, there was just no protection. They just saw you as another, you know, person who collects a check and then you're gone. That would piss you off. No matter no matter how much you're making, you can be making minimum wage, you can be making thousands of dollars a day. If you do not have the proper protection, because that's gonna affect your livelihood. Think of it that way. These people 
yes, what they what they do can make and what we do is to a certain point glamorous. We do have you know a job we do that gets us you know attention and stuff like that. But you know what we we do is also a service. What you do is a service. What your job as well. You want the necessary protection. That's all we want. That's all we want. Our friends, David Sobolov, Courtney Taylor, uh, you know, Roger Craig Smith. That's all we want for us and them is to say, hey, you know, let's pre- be protected. Let's be fair here. Let's have this transparency. Now, James and I aren't SAG-AFTRA, but, I mean, again, you get the gist of it. Everybody wants protection when it comes to their job, and that's what the voice actors are asking for. Right, and I realize that that sounds ridiculous on the surface, but hopefully you understand that it's it's a special skill set, just like an athlete, just like a, an actor on the screen, stuff like that. It's a special skill set, and with a certain special skill set comes certain compensation. Now, yes, these voice actors, some of them can make a lot of money doing these projects already. But just because you're making a lot of money doesn't mean that it's not putting strain on you. And I think that that's another thing that needs to be like the, like the running back in the NFL that retires but can't really walk anymore right. because they beat their body up. Now, yes, you make a choice to do that, but at some point you have to realize that, you know, just like any of us, like you said, no matter what you do, you have to have quality of life uh, to factor into any job that you do. And if this is what you do and if this is what you're good at and what you love to do, you shouldn't have to stop doing it just because the working conditions aren't as, they aren't as they should be. Right. And like I said, we're not like we're we know what's going on. Like, listen, we know that we're not pounding concrete. We know we're not working construction. Right. We're, we're talking for a living. But the truth is, everybody, no matter what your job is, no matter what you get paid, you need protection. That's all we want. That's all we want the voice actors to totally, have as well. Yes. And there you are know? more dangerous jobs, obviously. So right, you, obviously. But you don't comp- you can't compare those things. You know, you can't compare voice acting to like serving in the military. You can't do that, you know? You can't compare those two things. So you have to look at everything in its own vacuum when it comes to stuff like this, especially when there's unions and contracts and stuff like that involved. So obviously we know there are jobs that are more dangerous that get paid less, but it's really not not a comparison that you can make. So I understand the frustration, the anger in some sense, but I just, I'd like everybody in it to just take a step back and really think about it in the perspective of yourself. If you were in the same situation, how would you feel kind of thing? Exactly. And moving on to our next story, James, going to Deadpool. And so Deadpool 2, we know is happening and it's moving forward. However, it did lose its director, Tim Miller. And being that I am the huge Deadpool fan, I will just go first and say, Yes, Tim Miller did bring some awesome action sequences and, and made things look nice. But really, I think the heart and soul of this really is Ryan Reynolds and the writers. And as long as they're on board, I don't have fears about Deadpool 2. No, neither do I. I mean, I understand that, it, again, on the surface, this is one of those things you see it and you're shocked. And you're like, whoa, where'd this come from? Left field kind of thing. And you start to worry and then you think, you really think about it and it's like, okay, who made Deadpool happen? The fans and Ryan Reynolds. Okay, well, they're still on board, obviously. The writers that are that were involved in the movie that did such a fantastic job, they're on board. Uh, key cast members, as far as I've seen so far, are going to be coming back. Now, one of the contentious points, apparently, in this breakup was the casting of Cable. Now, I, I it just seems odd to me that 
they not first of all that they'd be that far apart on who would play them, and that two that would be a straw that broke the camel's back issue. You know what I mean? Yeah, and you know Tim Miller, I can't think the guy's name, but he was in movies like Wolf of Wall Street. He was in Friday Night Lights as well. He was the coach on the TV show, and he wanted him to play Cable. I can't I can't see him as Cable. Cable to me is this grizzled. You know, if you want to go like Stephen Lang or something like that, that'd be pretty cool, you know. But, I mean, again, you look at that, and it's like he doesn't, I don't think, fit the profile for it. Another reason why they said that the two splits pretty much uh, was because of budget. Apparently, Reynolds wants the budget to be bigger than the last movie. Miller wanted to be a little bit more yeah. less. Now, I will say this. I think one thing that did work in, the De- in Deadpool's favor, in the first movie's favor, was that it was a lower-budget film. However, I will say this. It doesn't need the $200 million budget, no. But I think if it used a little bit more money, if it gave it a little bit more money, you could probably get more cast members in there. For example, you could probably get like, you know, hey, we can afford now to get Wolverine in here, you know, or, or something like that. Or, you know, as, as Deadpool, one of the jokes in the first movie was, you know, it seems like only have, I only see two X-Men in here in a whole mansion. It's like the studio just couldn't afford another X-Men. Right. You, you know? So, I mean, just think of what you can add with that budget. It doesn't all go, to go towards explosions and stuff right. like that. Um, I think that when you also you look at the, the what reasons that why they differed in Fox, I think, you know, of course, made the right move in choosing Reynolds over Miller. Uh, was the fact that the tone of the film, you know, Miller wanted more, I think, of a, a grounded or stylized, you know, action film. Reynolds says, no, let's make it more raunchy comedy. And again, it, it's Deadpool. It needs to be raunchy comedy with, be- with pieces of action inside of it. Yeah, I mean, there's multiple sources here as well that, that have reported all of these things. And I agree with you. Kyle Chandler is not... He is not Cable. Sorry. I like Kyle Chandler. I think he's a very talented guy, but I just don't think he's right for the part of Cable. And I agree. I think that you got to keep this low budget. And I don't understand. I mean, I know something succeeds beyond expectations, and you, you see that and you go, oh, well, let's make it bigger. Let's make it better in the next one. You can do that with the almost exact same budget that you have now. And I understand increasing the budget a little bit, but you don't need to jack it up like double, triple what it was before. That's not... What Deadpool is, oh, what no. makes Deadpool Deadpool is Ryan Reynolds and his portrayal and all the secondary characters that weren't big highlight names like Blind Al and stuff like that that you almost take for granted in this movie. But the the sum of the parts made this movie successful for what it was. Right, and again, this movie does not need Justice League size budget. No, but, but a little bit more of an increase would be cool because that way we can see you know more gunplay and stuff like that. And again, I'm not saying it needs to be exponentially expensive; it needs to be hugely expensive, but a little bit more of a kick. I think if it, if you give it at least, I think a hundred, maybe. $110 million, I think it'd be fine. I think that even seventy-five, eighty, you could do plenty. Yeah. You know, because that, that adds a little bit of something. And I mean, I know that as you go, if you want to put like a, a semi-major villain in a future Deadpool movie, you're probably going to have to jack up the budget because you want to get a legit uh, person to play oh, that would, role. You know? I would love to see a Mr. Sinister in a Deadpool movie. That'd be pretty cool. Well, I mean, if he ends up being in Logan, if they wanted to transition him over... Use the same guy. That would be interesting. Well, as Deadpool pretty much said, you know, McAvoy or Stewart, these timelines are confusing. That's so right. Very confusing. One, <laughs> so one way or another, you know, Mr. Sinister, whomever can be in a Deadpool movie. But moving on from Fox, let's go to CBS. And, of course, CBS All Access is their new streaming service. And one of the big shows, actually the big show, I say, 
is, of course, Star Trek Discovery. But unfortunately, as Deadpool lost his director, Star Trek Discovery lost Brian Fuller as their showrunner. Yeah, and this first reporter by The Hollywood Reporter saying that he's stepping down because it's due to other, quote-unquote, other projects that he's working on, but they also go on to say that the uh, CBS Television Studios released a statement that said, we're extremely happy with the creative direction of Star Trek Discovery and the strong foundation that Brian Fuller has helped us create for this series. Now, I see that and I'm going... Okay, that's great, but this is all also a series, Nick, that's been pushed back already. It was supposed to come out in January. They move it to May. Now you lose your showrunner. It just doesn't look good, man. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's it does not look good. Again, that news about getting pushed back to May came out last month. But I mean, and then you look at the, just the budget overall. Remember, we were talking about Supergirl, how expensive each episode was, and that was going to cost. This is going to cost. This is according to Variety, six to seven million dollars per episode. That's a lot. And not only that, for a is, web this, series. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. This yeah. is for a streaming web series. This isn't like a Netflix thing. Granted, it's still CBS, but this is CBS All Access. This is something that people have to sign up for and pay money for. So that's insane, especially because Star Trek, from the beginnings with William Shatner to all the way to, to now, was never really a series or a project or a pro, or an IP that really had a lot in terms of, you know, aesthetics and stuff like that, in terms of costs and special right. effects, really, you know? It's not like the level of Star Wars is. Right, and they are saying that Fuller will remain deeply involved in the creative story, again, according to The Hollywood Reporter, but now you're going to divide showrunning duties up between, like, three people who are also part of the project. It just seems like... It's like the it's like the horse in the race that just can't seem to get it going, even though you expected the horse to show pretty well in the race. And if it's going to cost that much money, and it's in CBS All Access, CBS is not known for just letting things waste money. I mean, look what they did with Supergirl. You had to push Supergirl to the CW because of that it was too expensive, and that was already on CBS, not even CBS All Access. You want to spend this much money on on a CBS All Access show because that could bankrupt CBS All Access before it even gets off the ground. Right, and so I think that you look at this and you look at what they're doing, I and mean, you have people there like Riker who spent seven years on Next Generation. You, you know, and that's, I think... If you're a Star Trek fan, that's why I think you should not be worried as too much about this. I mean, it sucks because Fuller was uh, – he's a, he's a great mind in terms of Star Trek. But you look at who he surrounded himself with when he was shown. He brought back people from Next Generation, from, I believe, Voyager. Right, You know, right. all these different Star Trek entities, so you're bringing them all back. So it's not like you're bringing in people who don't know much about Star Trek or do, but haven't really worked on a, a, a project for Star Trek. Right, but you know, it almost feels like you're pumping the brakes at this point, you know? Right. It seems like, okay, first it was this, now it's this, and now as a fan, I think that you can't help but wonder when the next shoe's going to drop kind of thing. And and again, you got to go back to this is CBS All Access, and this is really, if I'm, if I'm remembering this correctly, their first original program that they're going to put as far as a major project on CBS All Access. And the thing with Netflix, you brought that up, and I'll throw Hulu in there as well, is you had a reason to subscribe to either of those things, either because A, they had a lot more original content, or B, they were providing something that you weren't able to get with a broadcast antenna either, as far as being able to binge watch stuff. You could still get 
CBS programming for free on an antenna. So the incentive is not to be able to watch all of the CBS shows after the fact, I don't think, like it would be for a Netflix or Hulu. So I just, I worry about this. I worry about CBS All Access either being too expensive or bankrupting itself because it's just the stuff that they're trying to produce is just too expensive. Either there, there's just not a lot of interest for people to say, you know what? And then there's that, yeah. People say, you know, people, because remember, we're still in the era of DVR. So people say, well, you know what? I can just DVR it. I don't need to, you know, oh, okay, they got Star Trek, but really I can go back and watch The Next Generation. I can watch Voyager or whatever, you know. Especially if it's not good. Right. Like, if the first episode isn't very good, that's right. not going to be a good sign. Now, here's the thing. If CBS All Access says, here's a month free, then after that's going to be 10 15 bucks, you can cancel after that, you know, and see how Star Trek plays right. out and right. see if you enjoy it. But moving on, people are probably thinking, Jesus Christ, you talk about right... Uh, Voice actor strike, you talk about, you know, a director leaving Deadpool, you talk about Star Trek losing its fucking showrunner. Is there any positive news <laughs> out there that you guys will talk about? And yes, yes, there is, because Muppet Babies are coming back via Disney. I feel like we knocked on several doors for Halloween and we got toothbrush, <laughs> toothbrush carrots and now we're finally getting the candy because Muppet Babies is going to be coming back to Disney Junior perfect spot for it in 2018 and I was just talking to my wife the other day as a matter of fact we we're trying to find out other shows that my son like might like watching and I brought up Muppet Babies which really isn't readily available pretty much anywhere the old Muppet Babies version and then lo and behold a couple days later here comes this thing. Now, you got to wait until 2018 for it, but man, Muppet Babies was one of those shows that when I was younger, I always gravitated towards. Oh, yeah, man. I mean, the original series, which I, I watched when I was little, I mean, quick quick little side note here, a little story. I didn't know about brushing your tongue until there was an episode where we were talking about like, brushing your teeth, and Kermit's, and Kermit's trying to brush his teeth. They're like, Kermit, you don't have any teeth. How do you do? He's like, I brushed my tongue. Yeah. And so it's like, well, I mean, I know it was a horrible Horrible Kermit pressure. I should be shot. Well, it was be... it was Kermit while he was brushing his tongue. So I get it. Yeah, but still, I mean, it, it was just a bad impression overall. I apologize to the to the memory of Jim Henson. I apologize to everybody who had to listen to that shit. But I mean, that ran from 1984 to 1991, so seven seasons on CBS. So <laughs> we go from one CBS story yeah. to another. Yeah, there you um, go. But, I mean, no, it was fun. Like, you know, you had uh, the nanny there. You never really saw her face. Uh, you always saw, you know, like her legs and stuff like that. And, and it, was, it was kind of like, you know, Charlie Brown and the adults. You never really see them. You don't right. see right. certain parts of the shadows of them pretty much. Uh, but, I mean, it was fun. I mean, you know, they had music in there as well. And, I mean, it's one of their songs is in my head. And it, 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 it's them on the merry-go-round. It's singing about, like, around the world or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the reason why it stuck in my head is because I had a videotape of it. And I would watch it all the goddamn time. <laughs> I wish I kept those, man. I, I didn't, and I'm kicking myself for it to this day. Now, here's the one thing I wonder, though. You saw the, you know, the splash of that, that they put up on Facebook when they said it was coming back on the Muppets Facebook page animation style. You a little worried about what they're going to go with here? Because I'm a little concerned. I mean, listen, CG animation, it is what it is. It's here to stay. Nobody's going to go back to the 2D animation. Would I love to see a 2D animated show? Sure. But again, there's things like YouTube. I can go on and just watch an episode mm-hmm. here or there of it and, and get my fill. So, I mean, again, we talked about this a couple weeks ago with the Power Rangers trail and how, you know, listen, I'm 28. This is geared towards, you know, seven-year-olds. Right, right. You know, four-year-olds. You know, I mean, 
I don't care. Well, I probably watch it, yeah, because, I mean, listen, even though it's a kid's show, it's a baby show, it's Muppet Babies, so it's like, you know, there is some interest there that you, they, I'm just like, oh, okay, it's it's here, you know, and plus, who knows, one day when I'm a dad, it's like, you know, training myself well to know, what should my kids watch? Right, you know, exactly. Kind of you know, it's, it's just, uh, hey, it, you know, it's fun. And of course, Disney's also set to premiere a new version of DuckTales in 2017. Uh, Nickelodeon has a TV movie based on Legends of the Hidden Temple, so I mean, in a sense, it's nice to see that even though in a different way, these projects are coming back, you know, like Muppet Babies and DuckTales. But again, you know, if you're somebody who's our age or you're somebody who's grown up with this stuff, you can't be like, these aren't my Muppet Babies, you know? Right, like, like, like when I saw the new version of Danger Mouse, I didn't go, this isn't my version of Danger Mouse. No, you enjoy <laughs> it for what it is or you don't watch it. I mean, it's really that simple. There's nothing to, you know, get a huge rise over. Right, well, like Voltron, like, I'm a huge fan of Voltron, but when I saw, you know, Legendary Defender, I didn't go, it's not my Voltron, my right, Voltron. exactly, yeah. You know, my Voltron had, you know, different animation style, and, and the characters, one of them wasn't annoying as, as it is now, you know? It's just like, yeah, it's... it's well, I mean, it helps it that that one was at least good, though, you know? Yeah. So yeah, at least there's that. Too. But, I mean, overall, man, it's a, it's a good time. I think if you're a Jim Henson fan in general, this is a something. You have kids. As James has a two-year-old. You know, my, my sister has a two-year-old as well. This is something to get them interested in terms of Muppets. Start them off right. Whether it's CG animation or 2D, it's Muppet Babies. It's exciting. And, hey, by the time my niece and James' son is four years old, that's when the show's going to be coming out. Yep. So perfect timing because that's who it's geared towards, four to seven-year-olds. But that's going to do it with our talk of nerd news. But come up next, we're going to get a little bit on our, oh, how should we say, uh, holistic side, as we're going to be talking to the writer and executive producer of Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, Arvind. Ethan David is coming on our show. Stay tuned. More Down Nerdy is coming up next. This is Victoria Atkin, the voice of Evie Fry, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast. Well, you heard us talk about it earlier on in the show, so why not keep things going and talk a little Dirk Gently Holistic Detective Agency from BBC America. Also, how about the Dirk Gently comics from IDW like The Salmon of Doubt? We just happen to have the writer for that and the executive producer for the show. It's Arvin Ethan David. How are you doing, man? Hello. I'm great. How are you? Doing very well. Now, I mean, speaking of Dirk Gently, some people might not know, you actually have a lot of history with the character. I mean, not only were you writing writing some of the comics from IDW, like we mentioned, and working on the TV series, but you actually knew Douglas Adams and were in a play based on Dirk Gently. So what is it about your love for this character so much that makes you want to stick with it for so long? Dirk is just... I guess the truth is, at this point, I first met Dirk Gently when I was, I don't know, 14, 15 years old and was at high school and was very impressionable. And as you say, I adapted him as my high school play. I directed the play. I played Dirk Gently, and I got to meet Douglas Adams. So at this point, 20 years later, there are days that I don't know what of me is me and what of me <laughs> is Dirk Gently. Uh, the, the lines blur, which is not necessarily a good thing because Dirk is not... <laughs> is not always the most likable of human beings or the most normal of characters. But the thing that I've always loved about him, the thing that makes him a great character to tell stories around, is he's so singular in his point of view. He is so clear, normally in an, in an insane and tangential way, but he always knows what he's going to do, which is to run 
straight at danger, to go straight at trouble, not because he knows how to fix it or because he's brave or heroic, but because like a kitten with a ball of twine, like a moth to a flame, he just can't help himself. Uh, yeah that's very true and you know dirt gently as we know uses a holistic approach to solve his cases so what kind of a hurdle does his approach present to you as a writer and what steps or methods do you take to clear that hurdle because you've done a wonderful job with it well thank you well the joy of the way dirk approaches crime or any mystery is that he is the anti-procedural dirk has literally no procedure this is a guy whose preferred method of, of investigating is to find someone who looks like they know where they're going and follow them. <laughs> In the sort of vague but too often correct hope that they will have some bearing on the case. He just sort of does, as he says himself, whatever. And because he is who he is, and because of his unique quasi-supernatural, paranormal, call it what you will, power, his connection with the underlying interconnectivity of the universe. Somehow, once he's on a case, anything he does, does lead him closer to the truth. Or if not the truth, something very like the truth. And in terms of writing and crafting stories about that, that is just so freeing because you're not constrained by the possible. You know, Sherlock Holmes famously said, once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Dirk literally doesn't know what impossible means. He doesn't have the word impossible in his dictionary because he's torn it out and used it as toilet paper. I mean, he is just, <laughs> he's just mental. So it's, it's a joy. So really, the, the challenge of crafting any Doug Gently adventure, whether it's for the comics or for the TV show or for the stage, is to sort of take an apparently ordinary beginning, a murder, a kidnapping, and then just go, what is the weirdest possible explanation for this. Oh, yeah. Or the, or, <laughs> oh, yeah. The, or, the, or the weirdest impossible. I mean, very often in real life, you know, we're taught to apply Occam's razor, right? This principle of logic from a 16th century monk that says, choose the simplest possible explanation. It's probably going to be true. In Dirk's life, that is never the case. You want to choose the least likely, the most complicated, the most convoluted, tangential, impossible, improbable, out there explanation, and then you want to build a narrative to get to it. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, you speak of your writing, and in Salmon of Doubt, we see that Sally's struggling with her feelings for Dirk, and him just being a different different than most men. We even kind of see it in the series when he's interacting with Todd, albeit in a different way. So how do you think Dirk processes what we would consider a normal human relationship, and how do you feel like that affects him? That's such a good question, and, and, and the answer is that there's a great irony in Dirk, because he is the master of interconnectedness of coincidence and its sexier cousin, Koinky Dinkies. <laughs> <laughs> but, despite this power, he's incredibly lonely. 
and he's incredibly unconnected. And this has always been true of all versions of the character from Douglas Adams' first, first book. You know, in the first book, he turns up having not seen his, his old best friend from college for a decade. You know, he was, he was expelled from college. He was, set, he was sent down from Cambridge for psychically cheating on his finals. And he hasn't seen his best friend for a decade. And then he suddenly calls him up out of the blue and inserts himself into his life. Uh, in, again, in the second book, he sees a girl who he thinks is vaguely attractive, and he follows her in his car until he rear-ends her on the freeway. <laughs> uh, in, in the TV show, he breaks into Todd Bronsman's Elijah Wood's apartment. In the comics, he sort of takes uh, Sally with him on an adventure. So he's always sort of looking for connection. He's always sort of looking for people to be his friend. But like, you know, like a lot of socially awkward but high-functioning people, he's uncomfortable sort of fully knowing what to do with that. And so he calls them assistants. He doesn't quite concede that what he's really after is a friend or a girlfriend or a boyfriend. He just sort of goes, you're my assistant. You're my assist friend. Be with me. Come on this adventure. It'll be amazing. We probably won't get killed. Or if we do, it'll be still cool. <laughs> and, 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 you know, in the comics, I wanted to lean into that. I wanted to present the question of what would Dirt do if one of his friends actually developed real feelings for him. And that's also the game we're playing in the TV show. Uh, what, what, what would Dirt do when one of these assistants actually went, no, I want, I want more than being your assistant. We're going to have a real relationship in, in any shape, a romantic one, a close, you know, fraternal love. What would that do to this, you know, insane master of interconnectivity? And I think that's a sort of fun game to play with. And it's one that Douglas Adams started to play with in, in the last and sadly unfinished book, uh, Salmon of Doubt, to which I pay homage in my comic series. He starts to do this as well. There's a brilliant sequence where Dirk goes to see one of his friends, Kate, who's the assistant from the second novel. And, she, and, he's just, and he said, a strange thing happened to me. I, I, um, there was this woman in my office, and she said, stop, let me guess. She was attractive, so you immediately insulted her and sent her out. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he, went, he goes, what, what, what do you mean? She goes, no, that's what you do. He goes, is it? He goes, yes, that's what you do. How do you know? You did it to me. I've seen you do it to many other people. It's what you do. Oh, and he yeah. goes, oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he writes it down. This is brilliant. Book. And he takes out a notebook and he writes down, insult and send away attractive women. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, uh, speaking of, of Sam and Adele, of course, in issue two of the current comic series, we go deeper into why Dirk is reliving these negative memories from his past. So what kind of threats do these present to his holistic views? And could we see something that like that happen as the series progresses? I hope so. That's the plan. I mean, one of the interesting things we're doing is um, Max Landis, the lead writer on the TV show and my partner in all things Dirk, has this, came up with this great statement the other day. He said, Dirk's like James Bond, he said. And I, we all sort of went, in what way? <laughs> <laughs> he's British. We'll give you that. Except he but shows what, away all the Bond girls. <laughs> yes, away, I guess. Yep. 
but what, what what he meant, and and I think this is true, is is Dirk is a really powerful creation as a character. He, he I think he lives in that British pantheon of Bond and Holmes and Winnie the Pooh, and sort of a cross between between Bond and Winnie the Pooh, actually, is what he really is. But, you know, he's a really, Douglas Adams created this extraordinarily well-realized character, and one of the joys of that is when a character is that well-created, you know, Doctor Who is another example, then different writers and different actors and different mediums get to send him on adventures. And even if some of the detail is different, if you're good at what you're doing, the essence stays the same and stays really identifiable. And even though Dirk in the books is sort of fat and slovenly, and Dirk in the comics has this ridiculous pompadour of hair, and Dirk in the TV show is played by the slim and handsome Sam Barnett, and there was a Dirk before who Stephen Mangan played, if you're all doing it right, and I think all these people are, then you recognize Dirk, even if he looks different. And the way you always know that James Bond is James Bond, and you know he drinks a weak-ass martini and, and sleeps with every girl he can. That you know there's an essence to him, whether it's Roger Moore or Sean Connery or whoever. So one of the things I'm trying to do in the comics is to play with that idea. And you've probably seen at the end of the first issue of The Salmon of Doubt, uh, we get a glimpse at, at a sort of room beyond reality where Sally time travels into an alternative uh, timeline and she sees on the screens TV Dirk. She sees the face of our Dirk from our television show and she sort of recognizes him as Dirk Gently, but he's not her Dirk Gently. It's not the Dirk Gently she knows from the comics. And I'm playing with this idea that we're in a, uh, a series of parallel timelines where they are more than one version of a perennial truth, which is Doug Gently. Absolutely. We're speaking with Arvin Ethan David, who's the writer of the comic series for IDW for Dirk Gently, also the executive producer of the series that's currently airing on BBC America Saturday nights at 9 o'clock. Now, Arvin, one of the groups that intrigues me and I think is hilarious in both the comics and the show is the Rowdy Three. So how would you describe them and how important are they going to be going in both stories going forward? The Rowdy Three, although it should be noted they are four of them. Yes are a group of psychosassic vampires. Psychosassic is not a real word, but it should be. <laughs> and, and what what they are is they they are these 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 creatures. Uh, I mean, they're people, but they sort of function like a wolf pack, and they are kings of chaos and destruction, and they feed on strong emotion. They feed on strong human emotions. And you've seen that in the first episode of the TV show where they beat the living shit out of Todd's apartment and then suck something out of Dirk. Mm-hmm. And, and you're about to see more of it in issue two of the comics uh, where we go back into their pasts and we see sort of the origin story of the Rowdy Three. And they're this fantastic creation. They're creation of Max Landis as he gets all credit for them. But there's this lovely idea that Dirk is maybe not the only 
uniquely gifted people, a person in this universe, that there are others who, like him, have unusual talents to do with interconnectivity and the quantum nature of reality. And the Rowdy Three are amongst those. The Kingdom Browns case in the Spoon Too Short comics is a really fascinating one to me. So here's a question for you. If your only form of communication was through song, what song or songs would you choose and why? (laughs) Well, whilst I think of my answer to that, I'll tell you one problem we immediately ran into in, and this is sort of a story of, you know, creator's frustration which is, you know, I came up with this idea that the only way they could communicate would be song. And I spent a long time, a long time, choosing the songs that they would need to communicate in. And then came up against the fact that because of copyright law, I couldn't use (laughs) (laughs) There is no provision. Like, you have to go through, and comic deadlines are such, there was no time even to try and ask permission and, oh, beg, no. you know, and beg favors. So literally on the day before we went to, so I had chosen some David Bowie, I had chosen uh, some Queen, I had chosen some Procol Harum, I basically chosen a lot of Douglas, some Pink Floyd, I had chosen a lot of Douglas Adams' favorite songs and had very cleverly figured out lines that had double meanings. <laughs> and then like the day before, was, like my editor was like, no, you can't use any of that stuff. It's just like a pit of sadness right there. You go through this entire catalog of music, and you're like, yeah, you can't use it. And you're like, well, shit. (laughs) So you'll see in the books, we end up using using some lyrics from Shakespeare, the the big happy song they sing, uh, hey-ho, the wind and the rain, the rain, it raineth every day. That's from Twelfth Night. (laughs) So Shakespeare, I figure, isn't going to sue me. (laughs) <laughs> it's, uh, like, it's like uh, Dirk Gently in the case of public domain. That is exactly what it was. <laughs> That's a future adventure. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, speaking of things that you can do, Halloween's right around the corner, you know, Arvin. So if you were to dress as Dirk Gently for Halloween, which look would you choose? Would you choose the big hair and the suit look, or would you choose the short hair and the yellow jacket look? Well, we all fell in love with the, with the yellow leather jackets. We really did. And uh, as a confession, both Sam Barnett and I are having our own made. Oh, <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice. So uh, I don't think mine's actually going to be here in time for Halloween, but maybe next Halloween I will wear that. But uh, the leather jackets are definitely the coolest version. And, and Arvin, before we get you out of here, man, uh, you know, Samuel, speaking of him, his portrayal of Dirk Gently is one of the most, I think, funnest portrayals of a character I've ever seen on television in a long time. So what is it about Samuel both on and off screen that makes him just the perfect fit for Dirk? It's such a difficult part. And when we were meeting with actors on it, we had, you know, inevitably you come to it with your own preconceptions and I certainly do, having lived with the character for so long and seen so many different versions. But here's the thing, Sam, is he's two things, and we need both of them. First, he is technically perfect. He has a verbal dexterity, a sense of comic timing, both in speech and in his physicality. He has a precision that comes from, well, it comes from decades on the British stage, working with some of the greatest actors and directors of our time, uh, in really you know, great plays. That's, where, that, that's one thing he has, and that's just such a gift 
to have as a as a writer, a producer, as a director, to have that level of technical command uh, at your disposal just inspires you to keep giving him harder and harder things to do. The second thing he has, though, is he's incredibly likable. There is a touching vulnerability to him, which in Dirk is so crucial, because Dirk is a, you know, an arrogant, annoying, bombastic, uh, absurdist, non-stop, talk, talkative, can't shut him up, can't slow him down, whirlwind of a character. And in the wrong actor's mouth, that just becomes deeply annoying and infuriating. And what Sam has is he has the ability to make you love him even as he's annoying you. It's like, it's like a hyperactive puppy. <laughs> even as they're chewing, you know, even as they're chewing your expensive shoes, you kind of love them. Well, you don't have to head to the pound to find Dirk Gently because you can find him every Saturday night at 9 o'clock on BBC America. If you love the show, fall in love with the comic book series as well. Dirk Gently, The Salmon of Doubt, number one, is available right now from IDW Publishing at your local shops and digitally. You want to find issue two that will be dropping on November the 16th. Arvin, Ethan, David, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your love with Dirk Gently for us. Thanks, guys. It's been a real pleasure. You know, James, I can picture Winnie the Pooh walking up to a bar going... Honey, shaken, not stirred. <laughs> Man, I've never heard a comparison like that before. I can just tell you that right now. James Bond and Winnie the Pooh. Well, like, I just uh. want to see Winnie the Pooh like use a silencer right now. Like it's just amazing. <laughs> right. <laughs> is and his kill line will be, "You're bothered." <laughs> 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 or like every time, or, or he'll say "Oh bother!" Like every time he's like interrogating somebody, they end up like dying. And like he end up like pulling somebody on a ledge. Like tell me where the bomb is, and then the guy just falls off. The he falls. Goes, oh bother! <laughs> and then of course his his sidekick's gonna be Eeyore, and he's like, "Well, I guess we'll have to find another witness." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you're welcome, Disney. <laughs> but man, it's just so great talking to somebody that just has a genuine love for the character that they're working with. I mean, we've talked to people that, that appreciate what they do and love their characters. There was just something so refreshing about listening to Arvin talk about Dirk, though. Yeah, man. I mean, when, like I said, we've had many creators, we've had many writers on the show, but we to have a guy like Arvin on here who can just beautifully, you know, tell stories of like, yeah, I tried to, you know, put in these lyrics for for songs, but I found out that at the last moment I couldn't use them. Like, it's just stuff like that, you know. Like this guy, you know, when you read things like A Spoon Too Short and Sam and Doubt, like. The thing that I noticed was is that you know how when we reviewed the show, I said you know it feels like everything's moving really at a fast pace and stuff like that, all the action and everything. Well, in this, in the comics, like there's not a point where it drags because no. it keeps your interest in it. For example, the trade for like a spoon too short is a little over a hundred pages, and then you know some people say oh it's a hundred pages, a lot to read, but you know I read that in like under a half hour. Yeah, it's a great read, man. I mean, you go get that trade. Of course, you've got the Salmon of Doubt, which is available right now, the first issue anyway. You're going to have to wait a couple more weeks, November the 16th, for the second issue. But it's totally worth it. I mean, don't wait for the trade for Salmon of Doubt. This is going to be one that you're going to want to jump on right away because you just feel Arvin's love for the character. And, and hopefully, I mean, if you missed the first episode of Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, you can go on BBCAmerica.com right now and watch it. But also, this coming Saturday... 
It's appointment TV, man. You get in front of your TV. Oh, yeah. BBC America, 9 o'clock Eastern Time. Check your local listings if you're in any other time zone. You're going to want to see this show. We're not overselling this. This is going to be one of the most unique, if not the most unique thing you're going to watch this fall. Oh, yeah, man. I mean, it's such a great show. The comics are great. And, again, you can just feel and see Arvin's passion when he's writing and when he's working on the show. It's it's just a great show all around. Great win uh, for BBC America and for IDW as a whole. But that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down Nerdy Podcast. And thanks to Arvin, Ethan, David for coming on talking about Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. Again, hit it up on BBC America. Watch that at 9 p.m. when it comes on television. You do not want to miss it. It's appointment TV. But, hey, if you want more of us over the weekend and all throughout the week, we're on social media, facebook.com slash downandnerdy. I'm at Merck with one arm. And, yes, I did change my profile picture to me in a Deadpool costume. So now my Twitter handle and my Instagram handle, which is also Merck with one arm, now makes perfect sense. It's all starting to come into play. I'm at James Ace with them on Twitter, and I think I've got the Captain America shield from Awesome Con. That's my profile picture on there if you're looking for me. But hey, you don't have to really look that far because you just go to downandnerdypodcast.com. If you want to find our socials, you can find it on the About Us section. Find out everything that we talked about on this week's show. You want to purchase the first episode of Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency from BBC America. We'll have that up there for you as well. And a whole bunch of other nerdy stuff you're going to love at downandnerdypodcast.com. And as always, if you go to downandnerdypodcast.com, we have separate reviews that we do from the show each week. This week, I did Sombra number 4, which is the final installment in the Boom series from our friend Justin Jordan. James, what did you do this week? I decided to head into the Ether from Dark Horse Comics, a book that's not going to be out for a couple weeks, but Matt Kent has got something going there. You'll have to read the reviews yourself on the website. And as always, passive, compa greeting, and always bag and board your comics. And remember, performance matters.